are listening to Tech Reads, interviews with emerging technology thought leaders. Our sponsor is SoftTech, the premier technology trade association that has been serving Northern Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County since 1997. Our mission is to create soft tech moments where people connect, explore ideas, and create new business opportunities. Learn more at softec.org. Our guest this month is Veronica Kieran, joining us all the way from Berlin, Germany. She's an author, entrepreneur, business coach, and professional speaker. She's won numerous awards for her work, and she's a two-time TEDx speaker. I discovered Veronica through her book, Stories of Elders, What the Greatest Generation Knows About Technology That You Don't, which is based on interviews she conducted in 2015 with 100 elders, those born before 1945 and often referred to as the greatest generation. Hope you enjoy this opportunity to learn more about Veronica and her insights as an anthropologist and creative coach and leader. Well... Uh, Yeah, so I am a scaling coach by day, but I'm an anthropologist by night, which is what we're going to be really talking about focusing on. an anthropreneur, that's right. I'm an anthropreneur. Um, And uh, so we're focused on my first book, but I actually have another study and follow-up to that underway. Right now we're in data analysis. So we can talk about that a little as well, if you'd like. Sure. And uh, you also shared that you're native Croatian. I am. I'm so I'm a native to the United States. I am a dual citizen with Croatia. My family is Croatian. Excellent. And how long have you lived in the United States? Or how I was born in the U.S. Okay. So you just last year and a half been in Berlin. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's, it's interesting and uh, good that you've got that. So um, and a little bit you probably don't know about myself, but um, back in 2008, I went out and interviewed 50 entrepreneurs. And I published a book in 2009 called 50 Interviews. So similar to your story, and we'll talk a little bit more about stories of elders, but I went out and interviewed, for me, it was to uh, learn about entrepreneurship as I had not ever worked for myself. And I figured who better to learn from than the people who were out there successfully doing it. So um, initially it was sort of just um, for my own personal information, but the people that I were interviewing kept asking and suggesting hey, you know, you're asking some great questions. This was back in 2008 when we were in the midst of a great recession, which means they weren't hiring. They're like, you know, I can't give people jobs, but I can certainly give them advice on how to start their own business and um, give them hopefully inspiration. So it worked for me. And uh, after those 50 interviews, I was finally motivated to take that leap of faith. So I know how uh, transformative the interviewing process can be and how just rewarding it is to to hear the insights and perspectives from other people. So tell me a little bit about Stories of Elders and maybe what was the catalyst for you and that project? Yeah, so I'm a typical entrepreneur where I just have ideas all the time, right? And we don't always uh, take action on our ideas, but this one really was burning for me um, in a good way. I I was a owner of a tech company at the time, and I could see how my own behaviors were changing. Um, I could see how the behaviors of my peers were changing. Um, This was about uh, 2015 when I was really starting to consider this. And um, just the the iPhone had been out for a while, and we were getting more and more into smartphones and social media. Like we were on the acceleration path, and I just could see the skills were tipping. 
But also being that I'm an anthropologist, I don't want to just go by what the news says or what you know, BuzzFeed articles are saying, because that's probably written by somebody who's a bit younger and it's one perspective. And to me, if I want to understand how something is changing the world, I need to know what it was like before the world changed. Um, and we were just hearing a lot of voices from people who were kind of in the change and living in it. And even myself, like, yeah, I, I grew up with you know, rotary phones and going and knocking on doors to see if friends were home, but I had a very small sliver of that. Right. I didn't have a full lifetime of that. And that's who I wanted to talk to. So that's over the over the course of several months and several amazing conversations with friends and confidants. That's how the idea started to take shape. Understood. And it was sort of to bridge that gap of knowledge that you were lacking. And um, yeah, it was it's interesting. And I, I I didn't finish it, but I've I've listened to a great portion of it. It's on audiobook. So if you don't have time to read like myself you can listen to it and narrated actually, by yours truly yes veronica's <laughs> better reading or her, worse yes reading herself that's quite an accomplishment to uh to do um yes so we'll come back to the book a little bit but i did have some questions more relative to kind of how you evolved because the reality sure. is you've got a track record now as a successful entrepreneur helping other people uh build their businesses so i have a couple questions related to productivity um, yeah. So how do you personally get hyper-focused in a noisy world and overcome the challenges of distractibility, which are so prevalent today? Yeah, um, I love this question. And it's something that I struggle with just like everybody else. Um, so productivity and focus is the muscle. Um, for some of us, it's an easier muscle to access than others. But the idea of taking away distractions, unlimiting distractions is something that we have to exercise throughout our days, day by day. So one of the things I'm practicing right now is um, keeping the phone in a different room for sleep and not touching the phone for an hour when I first wake up in the morning, because it's, it's not just a distraction. There's all of the other things that are on it that are designed to be distractions because the more they get your attention, the more they make money. So um, trying to start with fighting the urge and being in that space of, I don't need to see what's going on because nothing is that important. I need to be in my own space and experience what it's like to have a slower morning or evening. Um, I also try really hard to create the boundaries for myself for space, uh, for focus. So, um, you know, if I know that I'm not going to be focused at home, then I'm going to go to a coffee shop where there are no distractions, at least not the distractions that I need to act on. Like, um, yeah, there might be music playing on the speaker at the coffee shop, but the laundry doesn't need to be done. It's not my laundry. I don't have to make the meal. I can just buy one. So there's a, there's ways to ratchet down distractions. Ultimately, I think for me personally, it's come down to, um, having a real focus on what I want for my future. And because of that, that desire or that goal or however we want to label it is more compelling than the, you know, five minutes I might spend on TikTok. Um, so yes, we all need the brain break and I'm here for brain breaks, but I try to, um, you know, dangle a carrot that's more enticing for myself than those distractions. I like that. And I can relate to the working from home. So I've been working in the story labs co-working since December. And I can tell you my productivity personally 
has vastly improved. Uh, plus mm -hmm. two days a week, my wife works from home and we realize that that's very difficult for us because we just have things to do and that have been lingering. It's like, we finally have an opportunity mm -hmm. to get things done that around the house. But for me, I have a mental shift when I come into the office that really improves my productivity and helps me get through that list, that ever growing list, which leads me to the next question without a boss. How do you prioritize everything when everything feels important? And then as a follow on too, is how do you stay accountable to that? Because I even found this morning, like trying to get here by 730 in the morning uh, for this podcast uh, was not easy because I'm just so accustomed yeah. to having my own schedule and rolling in when I feel like rolling in. And it's right. I forgot what it's like to actually have a to have to show up somewhere at a certain time in the morning. Well, thank you, uh, because that means that I didn't have to stay up really, 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 really late tonight in order to speak with you. Um, but yeah, so I actually, t I talked to a lot of people about that, like feeling that everything is important, but everything isn't important. It feels pressing because we're used to pings and beeps and all of those notifications on our phones, which make make it seem like they're all equally important. But the reality is the tasks on the list are um some are urgent, some are important, some are neither, some are delegatable, some don't need to happen this week, they can happen next week. What's important is that you get it out of your head. If you're holding it all in your head, then it all kind of feels the same. And you're spending a whole lot of energy just holding on to the things so you don't forget them. And that is what makes it feel really urgent. So for me, I've discovered I've got to have things on paper. So I use the bullet journal method. Um, I'm, I, I keep looking at my desk because it's right here. Um, and I'm one of those people that if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. So it's got to be physical. It's got to be on paper. Bullet journal helps me keep it all organized and help me, helps me task my future self. And I'm also one of those people that if, uh, if there's a task and it hasn't been crossed off or modified in some way, it really starts to irk me. So I play to that. I make sure that I put things in my way for the next day or for the next week or whenever um, that I know will be an appropriate amount of energy versus maybe the amount of appointments I have that day or what have you. Um, but I know that if I have it down, like I most of the dots for today have been crossed off at the, at this point, or they've been modified in some way. And the reason being not because I wanted to do them all, but because I, I felt I couldn't let it go. Uh, so all that to say, get it out of your head, use a system like getting things done. You can use a digital system like Asana or Google keep. You can use the physical system like bullet journal, whatever works for you, but get it out of your head so that you can then really see what is urgent versus important. What can you delegate to your future self or just delegate in general? If you're a business owner and you have a team you can delegate to, delegate it off your plate. Um, and then that will help you stop feeling like everything is happening all at once. And it's all very uh, emotional. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's it's the need to complete the incomplete. I always... I know that I'm at peace when I have something finished and I've set yes. out to do it. But if everything feels incomplete, of course, you know, you're going to be constantly under pressure. I think right. too, I've, I've had some uh, experience with having a really good person to delegate something to, and then having that freedom to know, 
It's just going to be handled and I don't need to worry about it anymore <clears throat> as opposed to taking yeah. it all on yourself. Right. Exactly. Yep. Um, and also check in with yourself if you're overchunked, as Tony Robbins likes to call it. Like you might be thinking that something feels like really big because it is, and you need to chunk it down into smaller parts. Yes. Well, and structure, I think we, we find a structure that works. In fact, that leads me into my next question is, you know, how do you personally practice self-care? Cause I've, I found that at least over the last five years, having some structure around my days and my weeks, which, which builds in self-care is yeah. very important. Yeah. Yeah. And self-care is critically important, especially as entrepreneurs, because we can keep working until midnight if we want to. There's nobody to stop us. There's no like legal parameters. There's no, my boss is asleep because you're the boss. Like you can do whatever you want as long as you want, especially if you have an online business. Um, but if you are an entrepreneur and you're doing something that you feel passionate about, or you're just passionate about something in general, if you don't give yourself those breaks and you don't take care of yourself, you don't get to keep doing it. You're going to burn out even mm -hmm. if you love the thing. Um, so yeah, big, big, uh, on self-care over here. And I agree that having like a daily structure really helps, uh, to make sure that you get that time in because it can sometimes feel like uncool and not fun to self-care, even though it's so important. Um, since, you know, this is a little bit of a book talk podcast, I'm reading a book right now called um, 101 Essays to Change the Way You Think. And um, she has an essay on routines and how sometimes it feels like we're giving up some sort of freedom by having a routine and we're putting ourselves in a box. But in fact, it's much more like um, how Steve Jobs always wore the same turtleneck day after day because it takes away decisions that are better spent someplace else. So if you have your morning routine, your brain wakes up in a place of security because you know what's going to happen next. And then you also know you're getting your self-care time in. Um, you know that the important boxes are going to be checked. So then you can be fully present for the things that you're really excited to do for the day. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the, uh, of the routines. And then I'm also a big fan of just like making things extra. Like why, why not uh, instead of shower, take a bath with a whole bunch of bath salts and oils in it. Like why not turn off all the lights at 6 PM and light a bunch of candles instead? Like why not just be like, not Instagrammable because you want to take photos and put them on Instagram, but like do it for yourself, feed your soul, like just go extra. You're worth it. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I've got a few more questions, but John, you have any here? You have any questions? No, I'm just Nothing? You're absorbing. Okay. That was fun. Uh -huh. Don't worry. How about you, Connie? Since we're on the topic of productivity, I know your hot topic. Yeah, I. It's it's been really helpful. I've been out. I've been working on my own since 2008 too. I only had three months where I worked at a regular job, and I discovered it took two and a half hours to commute, get ready for work, make my lunch, take time at, at, for lunch at the office, and I thought. If anybody would accuse me of just flitting around from thing to thing and keeping my house clean versus doing my my work, my house would be spotless if I spent two and a half hours a day doing other things. So I'm more productive than I thought. And, and also, I read once that 
they did studies of how productive people are at jobs or how much time they actually spend working. And it's more like about five and a half hours in an eight hour day is productive work. Yeah. And the rest of the time, you're just kind of not being a machine. So right. um, and you need those, you need those brain breaks. They're also, they're just as productive. We just don't quantify them. Right. Sorry, well, I was too quiet there. And I, and I sense that our interruptions, like, so I, what bothers me when I'm working from home, when my wife's working from home is that she comes in and I'm working and she asks me for something, right? It's classic. You know, she doesn't realize the impact that it takes us 15 minutes or longer to get back, especially if I'm working on a serious, like high concentration to, uh, task. And then I realized that, you know, during the, when I was working in a traditional office, I, I would get irritated when people would st- walk up and interrupt me in the middle of my work session, right? I'm working and they have a question, like, just look it up. Like you, you know, it's easier to ask me. I'm, <laughs> I'm a people pleaser. So people are accustomed to, to asking for help because you always give it. But then I realized mm-hmm. my inbox is really no different. I'm basically inviting interruptions if I'm constantly checking my email and that is right. hugely disruptive. Yes, exactly. And the just the sheer like thresh, the, the magnitude of email that comes through now, 100 emails a day. There's no doubt that's a pretty typical number of emails I have to contend with each day. I could basically spend all day answering emails that I'm not getting paid for. Right. So, and I think what? I just heard your phone go off too. So you just got another email while you're complaining about the emails. <laughs> well, but that's, my, that's bunch- my calendar. I try to live by my Google <laughs> calendar. That is helpful. Yeah, with- yes. Absolutely. But I do hear a lot of entrepreneurs and just, you know, people who are really into productivity in general, um, segment time to look at the email inbox. And that's the time they look at their inbox. And like, what is so urgent, unless you're really waiting for like a last minute delivery, there's nothing that urgent that you have to live in your inbox for the whole day, one hour checking each day, that should be enough. Well, and if you're managing your projects in your inbox, you're not managing projects well. Like I moved to a project management software five years ago, and there's no way I could run my business any other way. I use it. It's called AuthorDoc. And it's it's just so, it, it silos out the work, the tasks, as opposed to email, which you have to filter through and you have to find. And I just, I don't know how anyone can manage a project through email. It's completely unmanageable way to do it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. You at least have to have some sort of CRM to create speak- a pipeline out of it. Yeah. And so speaking of technology, I think that the BSOs, bright, shiny objects is one of the issues and especially yeah. being interested in, in working for yourself and, and productivity being important and effectiveness. The BSOs, unfortunately, are also like there's always a new tool out there to make our job easier. Uh, there's no shortage of people offering new solutions. And I jump from solution to solution because I'm looking for what's going to work for me now. Right now I'm using like, I'm going back to some analog things that are really very effective. They always have been. I don't know why I stopped using it. One I love is called Don't Break the Chain. And if I'm trying to stay on track with something, it's that where you check it off each day and there's that you're feeling the need to complete the incomplete, but you're doing it for something right. that you want to do, Right. And it's, mm-hmm. it's analog. It's a totally untech solution. So how do you uh, evaluate tools, technologies you might recommend to your clients that you've in your, used in your business? Um, so I first really get clear if there's a shiny object, as you said, or do I really need another solution? Like, am I, am I truly lacking 
some sort of um, uh, opportunity that's out there to automate, to systemize, right? Those are important. Um, But a lot of times the shiny object makes us feel like we need to fix something that's not broken and that's marketing. (laughs) So I first get really clear if there's actually a problem and I use my business. So what I call it is the scientific method of business. So I'm looking for the symptoms within my business and let my business or my clients' businesses tell us if there is a hole because it will be obvious. It will be repeated. It will be clear. There's something missing and then we can fix it. Um, From there, I get clear on, okay, what is needed to be fixed? What are the requirements? And so that instead of just swimming in, here are all the options in the world, like here's all the new project management softwares or like all the note-taking, like there are so many competitors to Evernote, you can sit and research them all day. So if you know what you actually need in that solution, then you can start to eliminate rather than just swim in it. Um, And at that point, at least you can then narrow the field and truly go clear on both uh, what offerings you need in that tool, what's extra, and then what's the right price point for you as well. Yeah, it's something you could sustain because I know a lot of my clients will sign on to some really pricey solutions in anticipation of like, oh yeah, I'm going to need this. And like a year into it, they're like, this is killing me financially to pay for this every month. It's like trying to enable e-commerce on your website when there's solutions out there. I mean, it's an expensive thing to turn on your own e-store, right? Right. Right. And if you're not selling products, you're going to start to resent that. Um, But you hit on something earlier, I think, which is really important, which is the marketers are trying to show us that we need something we don't. Like I forgot that productivity solutions fall into that same camp, which is there's something wrong with you and you need to fix it. Yeah. There no matter is. what you're doing right, no, you can and we, do better. We have to remember that business has been around for thousands of years. We were tracking our grain sales on cuneiform tablets. We can do it without all the shiny things. So if we if we just take a step back and remember that the hot new thing that's going to revolutionize your life might not. Uh, and is it worth the time sink as well to transition everything? Like the problem has to be big enough that you can spend hours transitioning your business to a new system. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of software solutions and automation, um, but I want to make sure it's really worth it. Well, and I've heard, I've read, I don't know if it's true anymore, but I've heard that Warren Buffett, he doesn't even have a computer on his desk. Like here's one of the richest men in the world. And he doesn't even talk about no BSOs and using, you know, a system that worked for him. I mean, he must have a computer on his desk, but at some point in his career, he must not have had, but uh, who knows? And I know one of the entrepreneurs I interviewed, Jake Jabs, Connie, you remember from American Furniture Warehouse. I walked in his office, no computer on his desk. His secretary had one. But I asked him, I said, Jake, how do you get so much done? He said, Brian, I only have two things on my list every day. Like, wow. And basically it was one thing for him. And then the other thing was for someone else to manage basically the rest of the business. So, right. you know, when Jake you get was, scaled far enough, it's, it's very fun. <laughs> yeah. He's, he, yeah, it was a multi-million dollar business that he trusted mm-hmm. his people to run. He yes. was basically leading the ship. And it's, it, yep. it wasn't always like that, but he certainly reached no. that point.
point in his career where, you know, he two days, so he never had any stress and he was, he was just going around. He was very much a motivated, you know, he, people loved him. And so he, he knew his role in the business. Yep. The CEO visionary. Yes. So, um, I'm curious. So you have two Ted talks, which is pretty cool. A lot of authors would love to have one. Um, your second Ted talk was in November of 2020. And here we are almost, or at least it was published in November of 2020. Here we are almost two years later from when you made that video. And this was sort of in the beginning phases of COVID. And it's interesting knowing that you're in Berlin too, that you have a little bit of a different perspective than the US. So I'm just curious, how have things changed from when you, what you had that perspective because you had to get interest retrospective and give people some thoughts on how to make the most of COVID as compared to where we are today and where we're sort of emerging into this new normal. Yeah, I think this is actually like perfect, perfect timing. Um, I just gave a follow-up speech, basically, like I would say it was, it's the sister speech to that TED talk. Um, And I gave that speech to Creative Mornings here in Berlin last month. Um, And so if if listeners don't know what Creative Mornings is, it's a free speaker series akin to TED, but it's specifically for um, creatives and creativepreneurs. Um, It's, it's, a fantastic series. It helped me feel confident enough to launch my business way back in the day. So I highly recommend it and um, was very excited to speak to them. And they wanted, they wanted really to land on like, what are we doing now that we're, um, we're really two years out, things seem to be settling down, but are they, how do we manage it? So my, my Ted talk was focused on, um, about six months of findings that were part of the Stories of COVID research project. So that's the follow-up research to Stories of Elders. It's the next um, one anthropologically that I'm working on. And I actually really stand by what I was saying in that TED Talk, which is that it's not necessarily the people who have the most resources who are the most resilient in crisis. It's the people who look for the opportunity within crisis. Um, and so then what I, what I went further into in this most recent speech was that um, we're looking at basically the five stages of grief and resiliency. Um, so people who are able to move through the stages of grief faster um, in the middle of a paradigm shift, big or small, uh, are then able to be more resilient. Um, and that comes with a whole lot of other skills like um, holding on to outcomes or releasing your pre- preconceived notions about what life or what um, what anything should be like. Um, the people that we see get stuck in grief are usually um, putting other people's definitions of what their grief should look like on themselves and then forcing themselves to act a certain way or feel a certain way. And so uh, now that I'm at the end of that study, I'm able to um, kind of zoom out in a way and really see that we just went through another paradigm shift. We go through paradigm shifts all the time. This one was just especially big. It is uh, maybe arguably the biggest paradigm shift that humanity has gone through because this was a global pandemic. Um, so everyone at the same time was going through the same paradigm shift. It looked different country to country, but we were all going through a paradigm shift. Thus, we were all experiencing the five stages of grief as a species simultaneously. We can study that. We can see, okay, that was a 
big paradigm shift. How did I cope? So then now how do I cope in small paradigm shifts? Like, uh, you know, when you get a new apartment, that's still a paradigm shift. Your life is different now. I get a new job. My life is different now. Those are small paradigm shifts. The same coping mechanisms are endemic to each person, big or small paradigm shift. So um, that was my call to action in this most recent talk is how are you going to study yourself and how you experienced COVID so that you can build your own resiliency um, for your next paradigm shift, whether or not it's wanted. I like that. And being an anthropologist, I can see how that actually has benefited you through what's happened to the humanity. And, you know, you mentioned those life events, and I will say that was the third life event in my adult life that really shocked, rocked me to the core. The first was 9-11, because I was very much present to what was going on then. Next Mm -hmm. was 2008, which Mm -hmm. was brutal for people. I mean, it launched a lot of businesses, but I'm telling you, that was in my professional life, never had so much uh, frustration and just confusion during that era. And I almost like don't yeah. remember a lot of the details, but I just remember waking up miserable and having to go through mm-hmm. the whole process of, of, cause I was in sales and being in sales in 2008 was a tough gig. Yeah. Commission sure. sales is not where you wanted to be. Nobody was buying anything. No. And then, and right. then COVID and it's, and now it's following COVID. It's weird in the U S at least for me, for us personally here is the gas prices are, and granted, you know, what's happening in the rest of the world is, is much more significant, but it is again, shifting uh, our habits and the way we do things. Like I carpooled today with my wife for the first time in a long time because gas prices never forced us to carpool, but guess what? Mm-hmm. At $6 a gallon, which is where we're at at Costco, mind you, in California, which is typically where you would see cheaper gas, but not anymore. Um, $6 a gallon, it's forcing people to reevaluate and it's shaking like, okay, do I need to drive? Can I do go into town and, and make more use of the trip? So there's a positive side I'm starting to see. And like you said, the opportunities that higher gas prices can actually give you is, you know, you're getting on your bike more than you used to. You're thinking twice about, do I really need to go into town today or can it wait till tomorrow? Right. Yeah. So there's those little paradigm shifts that we're going to inevitably experience, whether or not they're on the heels of something large. Um, but we can we can look to ourselves for the answers because now we have something so big um, to teach us about our own resiliency habits. I love that. Well, thank you for talking about, about creative mornings. I didn't know about that. Yeah. And um it's great to hear what you're doing with um, kind of looking closer at how we're emerging from this, from an anthropologist point of view. Um, and how has that helped you with, you know, you share a little bit about the fact you do help people scale businesses and how you use your anthropology teaching in business and how we can maybe yeah. adopt some of those. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, put simply, if you, uh, talk about cultures, right? So I'm an anthropologist. I study cultures. Um, and we just changed that insects. <laughs> no, I think of anthropology. I think of insects. I don't know why that's yeah, that's not quite right. I am. A, if you think a little bit more towards Indiana Jones, he studies past cultures. Okay. Um, I study present cultures, uh, as 
you know, you might assume since I'm interviewing living humans. Um, but so if we change the word culture to markets, uh, then you start to see how anthropology is really nimble as an entrepreneurial um, area of study. Uh, and then in the same way, ethnography. So anthropologists are trained to interview people and be unbiased and really listen to what they're saying in order to then study um, and understand a group of people. And so if we change the word ethnography to market research, now we get really clear that anthropologists are very, very, very good at understanding groups of people that are not their own group of people. So not my culture. I'm really good at understanding other cultures, other target markets, as if they were my own. Uh, and I'm really good at gathering data from them, uh, which means then I have a leg up if I need to roll out a new product or have my clients roll out a new product. So when I'm teaching my clients um, to either launch a business, open a new channel of income, et cetera. I really want them to go into market research and I encourage them to do primary research, which means interviewing people. And I teach them how to do that so that they don't have the guesswork. Because to me, I see a lot of small business owners, especially sit in guessing. And there's a lot of anxiety in that because they assume that maybe the way they think about the world is going to be the way their target market thinks about the world. They're thinking, you know, I'm a millennial. I sell to millennials. So I'm just going to make a whole heap of assumptions about the language I want to use when I'm selling and how I want to describe the product. But as one of my mentors likes to say, when you're in the bottle, you can't read the label. So if you're in the culture, it's a lot harder actually for you to define and sell the product. So I, I actually demand that my clients do primary research as if they were anthropologists and I show them how, and then they don't have to guess how do I label it? How do I describe it on the website? What words do I use? What really is compelling for my potential clients and customers? They know for a fact. I love that. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I love that quote too about the, the bottle. So I, for, yeah. I skipped over one uh, question because it's something I've been working on for many years, but it's around yeah. confidence. And what I, you know, am kind of taken back by is your confidence as a young professional having two TEDx talks, you know, taking the authority and the leadership role that you are and leading other businesses just having that confidence, I think it took me so long to even just be confident to start my own business. Granted, it was way back in 2009, mm -hmm. but I think that a lot of the reason why people don't start businesses and don't think do the things they do is we lack this inner confidence that you seem to have. And I'm just curious, where did that come from and how do you mm -hmm. keep that in check so that it doesn't flip to becoming arrogant, right? Which people don't, aren't yeah. attracted to, but at the same right. time, keeps fueling you moving forward and achieving more in life. Yeah. And I actually started my first business in 2010. So we're not too far away from each other in that. Um, but I, so I, I think that part of, part of it is um, I just am really good at act, acting as if, so if I know that I, if I want to, let's say like open a new channel or launch a new business or whatever, um, I might not know exactly what I'm doing, but I'm going to act like I know what I'm doing because that's the only way we're going to learn. I have to put myself in the deep end in order to learn. There's no other way to do it. Um, and as you did, like you can talk to peers, you can, um, you can do interviews, you can 
uh, I call it building a bench, like in, in baseball, you get a bench of people to back you up who have more knowledge than you, you know, board of advisors or mentors or coaches. Um, but, but ultimately you have to do it in order to really learn it and to know it. Um, I think at somewhere along the way early on, I just got really comfortable going by the beat of my own drum. And um, what I've learned through doing that is um, just how to get free of all of the gunk, I think, that we put on each other in society, the assumptions and expectations that maybe work for some people, but don't work for everybody. And so um, I'm just out here banging a drum saying, Hey, if you, if you feel like you want to go to the beat of your own drum, I'll show you how. Um, and I think that fuels me. And so then perhaps, yeah, it comes across as confidence. Um, there's definitely risk is a huge part of that. Like I think why I never, never took the leap for so many years is I just felt that that was such a risky, um, in some ways, um, you know, not, um, it's, a it's un- financially risky. It's, it's culturally risky. It's societally risky. It's career risky. I think to me, the bigger risk is not trying. That's the way I used to think about it. Uh-huh. Like taking that leap of faith was irresponsible. And, you know, we're raised from a very young age to be responsible adults. Right. But then like, whose definition of responsibility are you living by? Okay. And so to me, I think All I know is I've got like this one minute that I'm here. I'm spending time with you. Like, I don't know if there's going to be another minute that comes. I hope so. And so um, to me, it's a greater risk to not try. Yes. And when the the fear of of the the regret, what is it? In one of the gals I interviewed, probably um, the most, one of the most memorable ones was the the founder of New Belgium, the president of New Belgium Brewery in Fort Collins, which was this yeah. very successful brewery, right? Kim Jordan. And she said it, they got to the point where the fear of regret was greater mm-hmm. than the fear of failure. And right. her and her co-founder, Jeff, her husband at the time, um, I remember they just said like, she was a social worker and she's like, we're going to be more miserable if we didn't take this leap of faith than we would be yeah. if we took it and failed. So when that pain of regret exceeds your pain of failure, um, that to me was a pretty powerful uh, framework and just perspective to look at it. And for me, what launched me, I remember now, it was Landmark. I went through Landmark Education, which is kind of this transformative thing. And that for me was like, just shifted me into something, gave Mm. me this confidence in, uh, I don't know, maybe a a framework that I I didn't have previously. So that led me towards a lot of other things down the road. And I but. think we, we also have the opportunity to reframe failure because we always are learning something. So what your vision was when you didn't know everything yet was, is probably different than what the reality was. Okay. But how much did you learn? How much did you grow? How much more vibrant is your life? Because you tried. Um, I mean, yes, there's always that scary moment of like, am I double mortgaging the house? So like take calculated rests, but, um, but there's so much, there's so much vibrancy from trying that I think it's, I think it's really worth it. And so I think that fuels me. Um, and then that also 
fuels me to like get others doing it as well. <laughs> well, the resiliency, like you said, I mean, but that's the, the, sh- the silver lining of COVID is that it's proved mm-hmm. to us that we can handle a lot. Like we can take more than yeah. we thought we could and we yeah. have survived and we're not dead on the street. We're not all homeless yet. You know, we're, we're all a okay in the grand scheme of things. So you, you start to realize that some of those fears that you had may not be warranted because here you just went through something so significant. So as a species, I think that we're more resilient than we were before. I think that everything is setting us up for something down the road. Ultimately, our death is right. The greatest thing we're going to face. But um, one last thing, because we're, we're a little over on my time that I, I wanted to take from you today. And I appreciate you giving it to us. Um, you are in you. Germany, which is much closer to the, to the Ukraine than we are in the United States. And I kind of feel like we are in a bubble and a little bit isolated from what's going on. Initially, when the war started, we were, I think, quite engaged and quite concerned. Mm-hmm. And it's not like things have gotten better, but it certainly is not the leading story anymore here in the U.S. Right. I'm just curious. It's got to be a little more nerve wracking because you're right there. I mean, you're not far from where the war is actually happening. Yeah, it's just one country over for us. We've got Poland in between. Um, I'm so first of all, I had to really like check my own privilege because I've never been so close to a war in my life because I grew up in the United States. And so I knew, you know, the anthropology radar goes off. And so I think, I think, okay, um, I'm not equipped. This is new to me. And I don't know, I don't know how to react. I, I can react and I'll react with anxiety, but is that actually an adequate reaction. And so I looked to my mentor here in Berlin. I asked my friends who have been living here for a long time. I asked a lot of natives, um, you know, like how scary is this actually? And mostly their reactions were, eh, it's horrible. That's not what I was asking. I was asking how scared should I be being in this proximity to this activity. And um, yeah, a lot of kind of shrugs of shoulders, you know, like we were here for the fall of the wall. Uh, Then there was the war of Yugoslavia. Um, So there's just, there's conflict. And um, so no, we're not really like buckling down for some intensity to spill over, at least not yet. Um, And it seems like that's, we're just kind of like in that space now. I'm really impressed and proud of Germany um, to this day. And I was just at the train station, um, the the central station in Berlin two days ago. And still to this day, there are people walking around with um, like uh, crossing guard vests, almost bright colored vests, and all of them have their languages written on them. Um, And so people are looking for refugees getting off the trains um, and it says what languages they speak. So um, they, they can help to translate and help to guide them. Um, There are services uh, right outside of the train station. Um, There has been funds set aside by the government and housing set aside by the government um, so that people can come and feel like they don't have to um, fight yet another battle to now that you're in a place that's secure than finding a way to be secure in the secure. Um, And so I've been really, really impressed by, by that, because that's not what I'm used to seeing in the States. I see a lot of people saying, no, don't come here. So um, that's kind of what it's like right now. Uh, And I stay up personally with the news, but I also follow correspondents who are either on the ground or um, in touch specifically with the situation. Yeah, it's, 
you kind of have to do your own work. Like even, you know, in the United States, you kind of have to do your own work because the, the new syndicates are going to choose for you. And, um, as you said, it'll get quiet eventually because it's no longer flashy. Yeah. Until some atrocity happens. And then it's like, can we be any more shocked? Because what happens here is honestly, I think we're just numb to death and what's happening when you have 12 children killed in Texas and, you know, know. people are just numb to what's going on. And and y'all you have to turn to is kind of entertainment and the extreme of how entertainment has gone. Um, If you're a fan of Stranger Things, the latest episode, the latest series is more extreme and, and gory than all the prior episodes. So it just goes to show that we're sort of being desensitized but that's a whole ph- philosophical <laughs> conversation we're not going to get into, but I just, yes, that's I a paradigm that I have not studied myself. <laughs> yeah. We're just very numb to it. All right. So why don't we just close out and why don't you share with uh, everyone a little bit more about how they can get in touch with you, what you'd like to maybe have is just some uh, leave behinds and takeaways for folks. Yeah, definitely. So um, I actually would invite you to watch my latest Creative Mornings talk, which I'm sure that Brian will link to. Um, But if you search my name, Creative Mornings, you'll find it. Um, Otherwise, you can find me at veronicakieran.com. So that's a great place to start. And that's where all the social media links are. Um, My book and books, actually, because I've been included in several anthologies for fiction writing, too, um, are on Amazon. So if you search my name on Amazon, you can follow me as an author. And I, you know, appreciate, of course, if you do feel like buying my book. Um, or you can go to the website, storiesofelders.com, and you can buy a signed copy if you are in the United States. So um, lots of options for engagement. And I think, Brian, you mentioned that, you know, there's a documentary of Stories of Elders because I took uh, footage of the interviews. That's oh, a, I didn't know um, that. No. Uh, yeah, so that was a finalist at the Liftoff Film Festival. Uh, that's at storiesofelders.com, too. So you can go watch that film in addition to buying Add a Add filmmaker to your repertoire. You have quite a uh, No, I worked with an incredible filmmaker in order to put that footage together. I can't wow. claim that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. And I, I, after, of course, I did my interviews way back in 2008, but I think mm-hmm. had I to do it over again, I would try to have captured them all on video and yeah. the medium is just different. Um, you know, and it mm-hmm. would be probably more of a podcast, which today, you know, that's sort of what we're doing is we're publishing in real time. Um, just a different form of content. And I think you offer some great insights and, and it's that authenticity, I think is where some of the real magic and gems come through. I'm sure in your interviews, it's the unscripted stuff that you have to get to that little diamond in the rough because Mm -hmm. we're so conditioned and trained, especially when we're on camera or being recorded to suppress our truth. Right. Be poised, be eloquent. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're in both of my studies, there were often people crying um, because we, we would get to a point of openness and sharing. And um, it feels for, for, again, talking about books for anyone who has um, wondered what it's like to be doing this type of work. It feels a little bit like being the giver where I have all of these histories and stories in my head that aren't my own. They're not my lived experiences, but I've gone so deep with the people, um, you know, over 100 years back in some cases that um, there's, there's this extra depth to my perception of what the world is and what the world is like. 
And I imagine the families and the survivors, because you mentioned about 25% of the folks you interviewed have passed, are very appreciative of you capturing this slice. Because I will share that one thing that was very insightful to me is, so one of the follow-on books was by, done by another author, Don McGrath, 50 Athletes Over 50. He interviewed my dad. And my listening to his interview with my dad, my dad shared things I had never known about right. from my father, because he just assumes we know these things and we see them a certain perspective. When someone they don't know interviews them yeah. and asks them questions, yeah. I was like kind of blown away at yes. the interview. Right. Yep, exactly. Um, and all the interviews with consent have been turned into podcasts. So if you want to hear from the people in their own words, there's clips of those interviews on the website as well. There's tons of ways to engage. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's been really, it's really an amazing experience. All right. So what do you have planned for the rest of the year? Here we are in June. What do you hope to do well, <laughs> before the year's over? That's a great question because I always take a week off at the end of June in order to plan the rest of the year. So um, there may be, you know, more books in the works, not really at liberty to say quite yet, um, but that plan will galvanize further. Uh, Are you coming back to the U.S. or not? Um, in what time context? <laughs> in the next 12 months. My brother is getting married and I'm officiating the wedding. So I will definitely be back in September. Just for a visit. Okay. Well, just for a visit. Enjoy your time in Berlin and uh, Thank you've you, got Brian. some options. So really appreciate your Thank time, you. Veronica, taking time out of your busy schedule because you're doing so much. Well, thanks for having me. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Tech Reads, sponsored by SoftTech. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or want to suggest an author for a future episode, visit softtech at softec.org and click on the Tech Reads link.